0: Hi, this is Cam, and welcome to the Translating ADHD podcast. Today, we are sharing another installment of the POC Voices series. This is where we highlight people of color doing amazing work in the world of ADHD. Today, I'm so excited to finally have Rach Itawu on the podcast. I've been admiring Rach, and Ash has too, from a distance for some time. And so we've connected on social media and i reached out to her and i'm just so happy that she's here and she's at the end of her work day celebrating on a friday and i'm in the middle of my work day but i'll soon be there but anyway rach welcome welcome to translating edhd
1: thanks for having me i'm like really excited to be here i feel like it's been a long, long time coming and it's a really a full circle moment for me
0: it's great. It's lovely to have you here and just to have these conversations because we just really yeah. enjoy sharing this with our listeners. So can you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do in this space around educating individuals with ADHD?
1: Sure. So I'm Rachel Doherty, also go by Adulting ADHD Online. And I'm a black woman from London and I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 26. So pretty much a late diagnosis, kind of came out of nowhere. But since then, I've been raising awareness about ADHD, well, undiagnosed ADHD in adulthood online, primarily through my Substack that newsletter, but then also via flashcards. I think it's a conversation that has needed to be happened and still needs to be happened. So I'm glad I'm just the one of many voices in the community, raising awareness and sharing my experience in order to help others.
0: I love both the newsletter and the flashcards and so we'll have rach's contact information in the show notes so that you can link to that and you're certainly making up for lost time like because it seems like yeah. what you've done in the last three years we <laughs> have been doing for like 25 years so
1: <laughs> that's amazing that like 25 years that's a round of applause
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess you could say that so It's one thing to have a diagnosis, and it's another thing to just move right into raising awareness. So what was that impetus for or the motivation to shift from your own learning to then sharing the learning with others, Rach?
1: That's a really good question, Cameron. No one has asked me that. So essentially, I had no choice. So I was diagnosed in January 2020, and as part when you're diagnosed via the UK National Health Service, Mm. you have post-ADHD diagnosis appointments with a psychiatrist once a month for 12 months. I should have said it took me about a year and six months to receive my ADHD diagnosis, so that's how long it took me to go through the process. So great, I'm diagnosed with ADHD combined type. I have two appointments with the psychiatrist and then... The pandemic hits in March, 2020. Mm. I get a letter for the mail saying, well, we've had to shut down the clinic. All of your appointments are canceled and we'll be in touch. i <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, sayonara. Sayonara. So I'm confused. <laughs> and at this time, I hadn't told anybody about my ADHD diagnosis outside of my immediate family. So I'm thinking, OK, so I have no one to speak to about this. Surely there must be some communities online So I checked Reddit, I couldn't really understand the interface. And then I just searched ADHD on Twitter and wow, there were so many people. So I made a Twitter account to try and connect with the other ADHDers, like yourself, Cam. And then because I had no one to speak to about my day to day experiences, like because I would have spoken to the psychiatrist about that, I decided to set up a Substack newsletter as sort of a diary entry to kind of like document what I learned. So that I can go back to the psychiatrist and say, hey, this is kind of like what it's been like the past couple of months. But then also I did check online and they had so many good like podcasts and YouTube videos. But when I was reading the information online, it was very technical and like medical heavy, which is good in like some respects, but I just wanted like the first hand account of what it's like, basically adulting with ADHD, and that's how it all started. So yeah, I stumbled into it in a way
0: yeah, out of necessity, and you saw it as a way to archive or share your experience with the psychotherapist or the psychologist turned into something totally different. I was looking at it, just reviewing your newsletter, and I just love the flow of it, the approach. There's a humor about it, humility. Yeah,
1: thank you.
0: Yeah, and sort of meeting people where they are, right, to sort of talk about a specific challenge, and then looking at you know, straightforward kind of tips and strategies of what they can do in this situation. So I yeah. highly recommend that people check out Rachel's newsletter and also check out the yeah. flashcards too. Yeah, so can we go back in time to, yeah. again, well, often we run into this pain point of something's up and I need to go check this out. Yeah. And what it was like to be growing up Pre diagnosis, not knowing, right? As a young girl in the UK with undiagnosed ADHD, what was that like and the challenge there?
1: Yep, for me. So I'm the middle child and I have two sisters. And I always thought I had middle child syndrome. So that's when a middle child just goes rogue, does their own thing, isn't quite on a straight or narrow path, but they just go along. So I thought that was what was quote-unquote wrong with me and then I thought I was a bit of a maverick so in terms of going through school I was you know very chatty quite disruptive but not in the rude way in classes I would call out answers I'd get restless and move between tables I distract others and I was a bit of a class clown and so this was actually picked up by my teachers they told my parents I had the attention span of a goldfish i actually had to end up seeing a school counselor to teach me how to concentrate and to stop fidgeting and stop being disruptive so she taught me a few techniques how to basically stop doing that but again it never occurred to anyone that i had adhd Hmm. so in my mind i'm thinking maybe it's because i'm a tomboy or because i'm a maverick or because i'm a middle child but i just couldn't quite get like the good grades like my peers i could like study for hours feel like I maybe know most of the book, but when it came to exams and doing like homework, it felt like it was just pulling teeth. I had like a mental barrier in my head that I was fighting against constantly. So what would take like someone three hours to do, it could take me three days to do, and I'm not even being dramatic here. And I I, think something was up. Yeah. Yeah.
0: My parents would playfully, it was playfully, try to tie me in my chair Because I mean, just that (laughs) resonates with me and that sort of, you know, sitting there and it's something that seemingly I watch my peers do effortlessly. It would just take me three to five times longer. Yeah, it was so hard to sit in the chair and my dad would just sort of playfully tied me into my chair with a bathrobe belt. (laughs) You know, just like, hey, buddy, you just stay here. I just remember that. And you also speak a lot about, you know, gender and race. Yeah. And
1: age, too.
0: How did being a black girl yeah. impact or influence your experience?
1: So I'm Nigerian. My parents came from Nigeria. My mom was a teenager and my dad as an adult. And when you come from a like, you know, first-generation immigrant family, you're taught you have to work twice as hard. You have to be a cut above the rest, you know, a foreign land. And, you know, my parents made so many sacrifices to be here. So on my shoulders, it's just like I've got to figure out a way through this. So this is when I was undiagnosed, I would take energy drinks, coffee, pro plus pills, anything I could to get myself to focus and concentrate. And, you know, I'm already stigmatized as being a black woman, but then a black woman from a country called Nigeria. It just really played on my mind. I'd also read so many different self-development books to try to be as good as my parents wanted me to be and to make their sacrifices of coming to this country worth it. So as a black woman, I had that pressure on me already growing up. So even when I considered that something could be wrong with me, even though I didn't think it was ADHD, I didn't want to have any like labels or stigmas on me. And so that's quite common in the black community in the UK, because that just adds another barrier of being black, having maybe a disability, like going hand in hand, it's almost just like the world is working against you. So growing up, I masked heavily, as, especially as a woman. So I'd read self-development books, I would try to conceal the traits that I struggled with in certain settings because of all of this pressure around me and because I know what it is like to be a black woman. And back then there was a lot of racism. There still is now. But you want to present yourself as the best. It was pretty difficult. I had a nice upbringing, but in the back of my mind, you know, these were what was playing up on my mind. And again, I think that could have factored into like why my ADHD was missed for so long because sometimes in school there's a stereotype if you're like a black and brown kid you have no home training your parents didn't do a good job of raising you and not that you could have adhd or other some form of disability so that isn't even considered i find that black and brown kids aren't given the benefit of the doubt usually it's you get sent to a behavioral center or sent outside of the class and not given the support you need because you're automatically demonized whereas you see that hyperactive boy or even white boy stereotype it's just like uh maybe he needs a bit more help i can speak to his parents about getting extra tutoring as black kids we don't often get that same benefit of the doubt right there's
0: that bias and play there
1: yeah exactly
0: you said that it kind of played with your mind yeah right sort of as you were growing up and it played with your mind can you give an example of how it did play with your mind like how did it play with your mind
1: so it's really interesting, because back then, I knew the term ADHD, but it was spoken as only boys could have ADHD. And if that kid was naughty, they had ADHD. And so in my mind, I completely ruled that out because I wasn't deemed a naughty kid. I was disruptive, hyperactive, but then also, you know, my inattentive traits. So I was trying to pinpoint, like, what could it be? And I didn't really have an answer back then. You know, I was playing video games. So I wasn't Googling, you know, symptoms, basically. Fast forward until when I was like 23. I started to think it was early onset dementia and i had gone to my gp and said you know i think i have early onset dementia oh my god we did a, yeah we did a memory test she was like, no your memory is fine you're probably disoriented because you've just traveled somewhere and this is the same gp who told me that i couldn't have adhd two to three years down the line so it's really interesting to see how that pattern you know continued on
0: yeah you know i love doing these interviews because again not about the pain and the suffering and the challenge yeah. but really the resilience Because what I'm hearing here is this sort of, you're constantly asking questions, right? Even when you're a young girl, sort of considering and thinking, it's like, this is not adding up. And there's a curiosity there of sort of seeking, I've got to find, there must be some solution here that I can find. And I see that in most of the individuals that I speak with who are again, leaders in the field and sharing like yourself, there's this curiosity and resolve to keep pushing forward. Even though it's not adding up, you don't give up.
1: 100%.
0: And so you get the diagnosis. (laughs) And then you get the letter and the whole adulting ADHD with rage starts.
1: Yeah, but it was hard to get the diagnosis. I should actually tell you about that and I'm going to say I
0: mean I'm in the United States so just to add this I'm appreciating as I make more friends in the UK um (laughs) I know that it's a nightmare here the whole thing about trying to get an ADHD diagnosis you know when you have ADHD if it wasn't so sad it would be kind of funny I mean just how ridiculous it is yeah got to jump through all these hoops to make this happen and i'm just learning about the whole nhs and the wait time and the bureaucracy of that the red tape so yeah please
1: go ahead so yeah so it's 2018 i had watched this controversial netflix documentary i'm sure you know which one i'm talking about But what stuck with me was there was a black man on that show and he had struggled with ADHD for like all of his life. I think he was in his 40s from memory. And then when he took medication, he was so emotional. I think he even cried and spoke about how it transformed his life. And then there was somebody else talking about struggling to do chores. And I'm like, hang on a minute. So this is real because if I told someone I struggled with these things, they'd say I'm ridiculous or I was lazy. So after I watched a documentary, I've done a lot of research on ADHD for about two weeks done, all of the online assessments that I could find, asked like my sisters about it and just said, you know, what do you think of this? And they're like, yeah, that's you. And then I said, right, I'm going to go to my GP and start this process. So online people tell you to take examples of your ADHD in childhood and adulthood, in your work life, social life and just in general, because many people, including myself, had to basically fight to be referred to a psychiatrist for an assessment. And that's exactly what happened when I went to the GP. He said, you can't have ADHD. I have a patient with ADHD and you're not like her. You graduated, you've got a job. So yeah, I'm sorry, I do not think you had it. And this has been my GP since I was a kid. So I've known this woman for most of my life. And I said, I never come to you except for my migraine meds. I really think I have ADHD. I'm okay if you don't think I have it, but can you refer me to a psychiatrist? Because they will know I had it. We had this back and forth until I managed to convince her to refer me, and she said, well, it's up to you, but it's going to take you up to two years. And I thought she was just saying that to dissuade me, so this was via the NHS, and it took a year and six months. So after I saw my GP, I saw one psychiatrist He said, yeah, it's likely that I have ADHD, but on the NHS, you need two psychiatrists to confirm it, and then saw <laughs> the final psychiatrist He said, yeah you have ADHD combined type. And they both asked me similar questions. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go through it. And that was in a space of a year and six months. So it did take quite a long time to get the diagnosis. And I considered paying the private route, but I didn't have the money to pay for that. It was around 450 pounds to maybe 600. And I'm like, okay, so if I gather this money and I don't have ADHD, this is money down the drain. And for right. me, I couldn't afford to just lose that money to be told it was all in your head. You might not have ADHD. So I decided to wait on the NHS. Yeah.
0: You know the similarities. You know, it's so fascinating is that this is only a couple of years ago, right? This is four or five years ago. This whole process. Is that right? Yeah. Then the diagnosis. Yeah, and here are these medical professionals yeah. who are ill-informed, right? These medical professionals who really would benefit from reading your newsletter. I, uh, <laughs> I my, think so too. Yeah, you know, when I was a school teacher, I got an ADHD coach. This is the infancy of ADHD coaching. People were talking about 1997. Wow. Yeah, like Ice Age. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, who's thinking way back before 2000? Oh. And yet this person, this coach, she was at an Ivy League type school, so a very competitive college. And the people there would say, we don't have anyone with ADHD here because they're too successful to have ADHD. Wow. Back to that same thing of, oh, you're a college graduate. You have a job. You're holding a job down for more than you know six months. There's no way you can have ADHD again, this sort of interesting snapshot, how people will just create this box around what they think it is and then just not move from it. It's so fascinating is that in order to be successful with living and managing ADHD, you have to start to consider nuance and distinguish because what do we do? We do this black and white thinking we do all or nothing Mm -hmm. and here we are presented with guess what black and white thinking it gets in our way it's incredible it's just astounding that there are so many things that have changed over the years yeah but in 20 years i mean that's 20 years right there those attitudes have still not changed and so it's just our work right the work we're doing on the podcast and what you're doing There's just still a need and there will always be a need for educating people about what is ADD and what is not.
1: A hundred percent. So even like I I work in the public sector, I'm on career number four and I'm probably going to have another career in a couple of months. And when I meet someone and I'm comfortable telling them I have ADHD, these are grown adults. I either get what is that? don't only boys have it or is it only in childhood but I get a lot of what is ADHD and these are bright individuals so there is still much more awareness that we can always across platforms or even in person
0: yeah so you do a fair amount of presenting too yeah yeah can you share a little bit about like what are the elements of your presentations what you see is what matters in informing people about ADHD? Like what are the nuts and bolts or the main components of one of your presentations?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So there are three key areas of focus. So my first one is neurodiversity in the workplace, having been in the workforce for about seven years. My second one is neurodiversity in like comics, TV and gaming. So I've spoken at Comic Con a few times and also at a gaming conference in the UK. So touching on neurodiversity in the workplace, especially if someone who's neurodivergent, people just assume what works for X will work for Y. So for instance, people scheduling back-to-back meetings without like starting five minutes past the hour so people have a break in between. That doesn't only help people who have ADHD like myself, who gets restless, but that's going to help everyone. who just needs to take a break. Or other accommodation is having like quiet Areas. I know some organizations aren't that big, but if it's big and there's a room to have like a quiet space or a quiet room for those who are overstimulated, that could help. Or maybe designated areas where phone calls can't be taken, like accommodations that access to work. So in the UK, there is this scheme where you can get an ADHD coach or tools or access to other tools if you're neurodivergent, and the government will fund that for you for your workplace schemes. So just speaking about navigating the workplace as someone with ADHD, but then also the strengths I bring to the workplace. I'm full of ideas. Sometimes I do like the fast-paced work independent on what it was. I love problem solving and some juicy, meaty ideas. So sometimes it's also challenging those stereotypes that people with ADHD are lazy or can't do anything or need to be micromanaged or need a babysitter. But then it's not true because we all have different needs and making it clear to people that they need to speak to the person they're manager, who has ADHD or the person they work with to understand what their needs are, where they may need more support and which areas they thrive more in. So that's kind of like the bulk of the work I do on like neurodiversity and a bit of consulting on like maybe some of the organization's hiring practices or like the accommodations offered at the interview stages.
0: Mm. And um, I just a couple of things. One is in coaching we look at perspectives Right. So there's sort of the thing, right? The thing you got to do or the project you've got to complete, the relationship you want to have or not want to have. And there's also then how you're looking at it, right? So perspective is how you're looking at the thing. And it sounds like you'd help people with developing new perspectives, especially around the accommodations. And it's like, what really makes sense. Like these are sensible ideas that are going to be beneficial to not just the individual with ADHD.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think it's all about shifting perspective. When we are raising awareness, you have to understand that people are at different starting points. Some people may know a little about ADHD or some people may know a lot or think they know a lot and they go, well, I've watched this TV show and that person has ADHD. So that's how everybody with ADHD acts like. And I think that could be very unhelpful to other ADHDers who are in a workplace who have different needs or thrive in different areas. So again, like you say, it's all about shifting perspectives and try people not taking a one size fits all approach when it comes to ADHDs in the workplace. Yeah. You know, and the other thing, a couple of years back the term gamification was <laughs>
0: yeah. around a bit. And again, like I was listening to a It may have been a TED talk. I don't know. But it was someone who was trying to figure out how to bend a protein, you know, to fold a a protein. And, you know, it was this really difficult challenge. And what they did was they put it out to gamers wow, and sort of put it out to them of like, you just need to fold this in a certain way that then it operates in a certain way. I mean, again, I know nothing about proteins. I know nothing about, you know, (laughs) the research, but I knew what the person did was to see that using gamification in order to solve a problem. You know, I'm just curious about how your interest in gaming, how that helps you solve bigger problems.
1: You want to comment on that? Yes. I've had almost every single game console since the Sega Mega Drive, Nintendo 64, PlayStation 2, a playstation 4 my sister has a playstation 5 which i play nintendo 64 all of that and for me playing video games it's almost just like the best experience ever because i'm sat there hyper focused adventuring into new worlds so then it's opening up the creativity side of my brain and I'm not sure about you, but I find inspiration everywhere and ideas everywhere. So if I played a game and I've entered into a new world or I figured out a way, I actually do apply it in my day to day work life. So when you're completing missions in a game, the ultimate aim is to finish the game. So as missions go on, they get harder. But because I'm super into the game, I'm so motivated and I say, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to fall out the first hurdle if this doesn't work I'm going to try these five other ways for it to work and because I got into the habit and rhythm of doing that playing games I started to do that at work so let's say a stakeholder had to tackle issue and a difficult problem to solve I would brainstorm five to like six different ideas that it could help to address those problems the pros and cons of those and other things they could consider so it's just being open to exploring different ideas but then also breaking down the problem in order to get one or many different solutions and i got a lot of that from games and then going back to university when i used to write my essays it was so hard cameron it was so hard so i do one paragraph and then i say well if i do this paragraph i will play like a game in tony hawk's pro skater and then i'll come back so i really used it as a productivity tool and would reward myself when I complete task or i say I'm going to give myself five minutes and then it should be completed in five minutes. So yeah, I find that gamification really worked for me. Yeah. this harkens
0: back to you not being satisfied with yeah. not knowing, right? Back to when you were a little girl and sort of like sort of questioning, yeah. like, this isn't adding up. This isn't adding up. And this reminds yeah. me of Carol Dweck's work around mindset
1: mm. and the
0: difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. Yeah. Yeah right this sort of okay let's just keep working this there is a way to get past this obstacle if i keep working this and keeping creativity and strength you know front and center as i tackle this challenge
1: it all stems back from like my parents coming from nigeria like that young and having to figure things out being in the school system with like a nigerian accent going to university both graduating doing studying great things it's almost just like if they found a way i've got so many like opportunities here that i will have to find a way to figure it out so again it's going back to that growth mindset but and sometimes it's hard sometimes i do have tough days and i do want to get off on the world. and i have had that with you know anxiety being depressed when things don't work out that was the dark side of having undiagnosed adhd but there's always something in the back of my mind and also i attribute that to like my faith that you know things will get better you know praying for better days so yeah there is just much when it comes to adhd and also different mindsets
0: i'd love to touch on race yeah a, a little bit i imagine that that comes into your presentations too or yeah what you share with the world and i'm curious about what's the message you have for those young black girls what's the message you have for them
1: yeah so when i started like raising awareness online i was completely anonymous didn't have a name didn't have a face completely anonymous because I felt embarrassed talking about my ADHD and also putting my face on display. And then I had seen a tweet, someone tweeted, I wish there were more black people speaking about ADHD. And they didn't know it was a black person because I had an icon on. And then as soon as I revealed my face, I had like men and women, like not just in the UK, across the world saying, oh my gosh, your content helps me. Oh my gosh, you look like me. And I'm often giving them advice on one, how to deal with their families. Because earlier on I spoke about, you know, stigmas within the black community when it comes to, you know, what not wanting to label your kids, which denies the kids from getting support that they could have because, you know, we've come to this country, we want to look and present ourselves as the best. And with this label of being ADHD, that could probably set you back in life. So for number one, I, you know, tell black men and women, you know, you're not lazy. Having ADHD will not decide your future it actually would, for me, help you to kind of like unlock different things and understand yourself a bit better. So it's more so making peace with shortcomings that you have with ADHD, but knowing those shortcomings, you know where to work on, what to work on, and where to basically plan out your days or your life to get to where you want to go to. So having ADHD isn't a death sentence, and give yourself some grace. And I also, in the workplace, I try to kind of like relay the message that there is no such thing as like lazy, and um, just in general when it comes to laziness, because black people are so easily labelled as lazy or just not hardworking, but maybe they have ADHD. And you're just not giving them the support they need. You know, in the one-to-ones, ask them and what can I be helping you better with? You know, what would make sense for you in order for you to kind of like perform to your best of ability, or do you need some time off? You know, when I told my manager I had ADHD, she was just like, "Oh my gosh." What can I help you with? What do you want me to read? Or do you want me to tell me yourself? So it's just being open to that conversation and to just not stereotype people. Mm.
0: There's a theme here that I'm noticing about like back to walking into your GP's office, walking into and and doing, you know, an in service at work for accommodations and talking to communities of color around this. Distinguishing and nuancing, and it's not this black and white thinking, or or like this is what ADD is, and this is what ADHD is not. But it's like to really look at it with open eyes and what's possible, and it is possible, you know, that that this is going on. And again, it's this perspective work, isn't it? Really perspective work and educating. I'm just going to say there's a passion here and enthusiasm that is undeniable
1: yeah oh thank you i should also say i am from a working class background and in the uk classism is a big thing so you could have all of the money in the uk but if you're not of a certain class in some circles it won't matter as much as if it was in like the us where like money speaks so coming from a working class background being black being a woman having adhd and being young you have like five different competing barriers you know wherever i go so I try to kind of like show people that, look, here I am, you know, it's a struggle every day, but then also some days are great and give yourself some grace. We are living in a kind of a world that was somewhat created for neurotypicals when it comes to like workplace rules and how you should and shouldn't act and what's socially acceptable and what's not. And don't fit into the mold. Like, you know, we are great as we are our brains work differently, but we are not ruined or damaged. I think people will need to make space for us and also embrace us and learn to understand us. And it's, you know, you're not at fault here. So that's why I also try to communicate.
0: Okay, so you must have an off day occasionally. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Bob Brooks was a psychologist out of Boston, and he talks about resilience and islands of competency. Right. this is way back in the day. He was a great presenter. He presented on parenting and kids and helping them develop their islands of competence. You know, and so you just talked about these five challenges. Yeah. And yet you overcome. And so, you know, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it and continually do it. And I'm just curious, like when you're having an off day, yeah, when it's not going great, what do you do to get back to that place of Resilience and resourcefulness, Rach.
1: Yeah, so I guess for me it's faith. So you know, as a Christian, I just have that underlying hope and faith that things will, you know, work out for my good. So a lot of it is like prayer, listening to music so that moves me, or even just motivational talks. But sometimes that's not enough. But I think on those days, sometimes I just choose, okay, we're going to have a salt for two days maximum. I'm going to stew in my feelings. I'm going to tell my friends this is what's going on so you know people can be there for me but but sometimes i just have to sit in it and then just hope things will like turn around for my good so let's say the other day i'm someone at work and sometimes i don't deliver things on time or you know put a project plan in a way that would help them to do their job and they get it, they're very kind and understanding. But for me, I'm just like, damn, I screwed up again, or I'm just a really bad manager. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Oh, this person's going to hate me. So I do kind of like wind myself up and then I get stressed and, you know, go down. But then sometimes you just putting on music and speaking to other people in the ADHD community for some words of encouragement and trying not to let, to stay in a rut for too long, which is very hard because I've had months where I've stayed in a rut. but. I feel like the more that I go through things in life, you know, I've lost quite a lot of people who are close to me these past couple of years. I think the more I learn to become a bit more resilient. Okay, I overcame this. I've had a bad day. It's horrible. Yes, it's horrible. But okay, let's get back up again and do it again tomorrow because, again, coming from a working-class family, I want to make my family proud and I ultimately want to be in the position where I can retire them and where, you know, all of the sacrifices that they made coming to this country will be worth it because their daughter had this vision and, you know, was able to support them in a way that they supported me growing up.
0: Yeah. And I think that also that your motivation to help others. Yeah. I mean, helping your family, but also just helping people that you've connected with and yeah. that's really empowering too. It to is sort of like, Oh, I am making a difference. And that fuels you to get up and get going.
1: I was gonna say that's probably the most rewarding thing about raising awareness. A week and a half ago, I had someone message me and say, Rach, after like a year or so, like I finally got my ADHD diagnosis and I told the psychiatrist about you and she said, yeah, she's seen your stuff online. And then this morning, I woke up to a text from someone I met through like a computer programming event and she said, Rach, I passed my probation and it's thanks to you encouraging me to get my ADHD diagnosis and I've started meds and, you know, I'm ecstatic. So getting those messages like that and just being able to help people by just being myself and talking about my experience is just rewarding and you never know who you can help i'm sure like thousands of people have been helped just listen to you guys' podcast it's amazing i still switch it on i've written about i'm always like blowing the trumpet for translating adhd so yeah
0: oh thank you so i've really enjoyed our conversation today and you by did. the way listeners we just met <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the first time we got together we've been admiring each other ash and myself admiring rach from a distance and so this has been a really lovely and and nice to make connection with you Rach are there any last words you'd like to say as we finish up here to our listeners
1: i'm going to say a massive thank you to you all for listening and also a massive shout out to translating adhd because i feel like every single podcast episode i learn so much i take something away and it just makes me feel better about myself and mainly for those of you thinking whether you may or may not have adhd if you have access to and are able to, you want to pursue an ADHD diagnosis, go for it. It's never too late. I have people telling me they've been diagnosed at the age of 65 as recently as a week and a half ago. And if you're unable to get an ADHD diagnosis, you know, you've got podcasts out translating ADHD. You've got a Twitter community. There's a wealth of resources and people out online that could help you if you don't have an in-person community. So do seek out. And... Feel free to tweet me if you need any advice. I'm more than happy to help out where I can.
0: Lovely. So, Rach, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll have all of your information in the program notes. This is Cam, and this has been one of our POC Voices episodes. See you next week. Thanks for listening.